This is Ham College, Episode 10 for October 31st, 2015. This episode of Ham College is brought to you by ICOM, making DX local. And by hamstudy.org, a great place to study for your amateur license exam. Hi, welcome to Ham College. I'm George. I'm Tommy. And we've got another fun-packed show for you tonight. We're even gonna we're gonna bring out the test equipment, Tommy. We are. We're gonna test the flux capacitor. The well, if we get brave enough, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we wouldn't want any time accidents yeah. around here. Oh man. Yes. Well, when was it? Was it a couple of days ago? Yeah. Um, October the 21st on Back to the Future 2 is when Marty McFly supposedly came to the future to save his kids. So I'm wearing the uh, Flux Capacitor t-shirt in honor of uh, Back to the Future Day, which was a few days back. Where's your metal cap? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they did have some... um, some pretty weird opinions of what 2015 would be like. Yeah, they some of the things that were on there uh, kinda, actually have sort of happened, but some yeah. of them haven't. Yeah. Yeah. They actually uh, predicted the Cubs would win the World Series, and they actually went pretty far. They didn't win, but, though. No, well, they haven't had the World Series yet, but they're out. That darn you know, biff. Now, but, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about what we did last month. You know, we... We talked about resistors, and, uh, well, here's a little snapshot of them right here. The different types of resistors and how they worked and what what the purpose was. We're going to get into components again this month, and uh, we're going to be talking about inductors. Yeah. Um, That's interesting little components. It is, and, you know, I read somewhere that it was one of the most complicated components and I couldn't really see that, but yeah, that's what they said. The the well, the theory behind it is uh, is kind of interesting. The the way it works. Yeah. But uh, we'll talk about that here in a few minutes. Yeah. Well, let's get on into the show, and I guess uh, it's time for a history lesson. We we well, kind of wasn't even a few minutes, was it? <laughs> no, it just <laughs> happened like that. Yeah. Uh, today we're going to talk about Joseph Henry. Joseph Henry. Yeah, un- unlike Patrick Henry, this is Joseph Henry. Joseph Henry was born in 1797 and died in 1878. He was leading American scientist after Benjamin Franklin and was a professor at Princeton University from 1832 to 1846. His chief scientific contributions were in the field of electromagnetism, where he discovered the phenomenon of self-inductance. The unit of inductance is called the Henry, which immortalizes his name. Hmm. In Albany, New York, at 13 years old, he was an apprentice to a watchmaker. As a young man, he became interested in theater and was offered employment as a professor. <laughs> okay, yeah. Okay, I'm Don't starting over. He be, kind of jumped the career ladder pretty quick, didn't he? He, he? did. <laughs> it was really hot. <clears throat> okay. 
I'm gonna start over. No, at the top. Yeah, I want. I don't. I don't want to have all those cuts in there. Well, I mean, it's it's just a cut from one slide to the next, so it's not going to be. Then, all right, I'll start over in Albany then. Okay. In Albany, New York, at 13 years old, he was an apprentice to a watchmaker. As a young man, he became interested in the theater and was offered employment as a professional actor. But in 1819, several well-connected friends persuaded him to attend the Albany Academy, where free tuition was provided. By 1823, his education was so far advanced that he was assisting in the teaching of science courses. By 1826, he was appointed Professor of Mathematics and Natural Philosophy at the Academy. Despite being very busy for seven hours a day, he did most of his experiments at the Academy. Henry had become interested in terrestrial magnetism. This led him to experiment with electromagnetism. His apprenticeship as a watchmaker gave him a good foundation in how to construct batteries and other devices. Henry was the first to wind insulated wires around an iron core to obtain powerful electromagnets. Before he left Albany, he built one for Yale that would lift 2,300 pounds. It was the largest in the world at that time. In experimenting with such magnets, Henry observed the large spark that was generated when the circuit was broken and he deduced the property known as self-inductance the inertial characteristic of an electric circuit. The self-inductance of a circuit tends to prevent the circuit from changing if a current is flowing. Self-inductance tends to keep it flowing, or if an electromotive force is applied, self-inductance tends to keep it from building up. Henry found that the self-inductance is greatly affected by the configuration of the circuit, especially the coiling of the wire. He also discovered how to make non-inductive windings by folding the wire back on itself. Michael Faraday did similar work in England. Henry was always slow in publishing his results, and he was unaware of Faraday's work. Today, Faraday is recognized as the discoverer of mutual inductance, the basics of transformers, while Henry is credited with the discovery of self-inductance. Yeah, that was interesting stuff. And tough to get through. Well, yeah. But it's going to look like you just breezed right through it once yeah. I've edited it, everything <laughs> together. <laughs> Self-inductance and mutual inductance. Self-inductance, that's just a, a coil sitting by itself, and it's inducing onto its, its own self. Mutual inductance is two coils side by side, and one's inducing into the one's other. One's affecting the other one. Yep. yep. We'll, we'll look at uh, self-inductance here. Yeah, you know... Uh, Inductance is uh, the basics of some of the newer cell phone chargers and things where you can just lay your phone mm -hmm. on a pad and actually charge your phone without actually making electrical contact. Yeah. Uh, it's a pretty interesting principle. It's uh, honestly, it's way over my head, uh, a lot of the theory behind it, but uh, it's, it's cool stuff. Yeah, you, you might remember a long time ago in Amateur Logic, one of the early episodes where I did a segment on uh, how do these things work. Remember, I had a little yeah. crank-up radio, and we looked inside, yeah, and there was a rechargeable battery you were yeah. charging when you cranked it. Well, you you do the toothbrush. My toothbrush, yeah, now. it was inductive coupling to to get the voltage up into the battery to charge it. So. Yeah, I remember that now that you bring it up. That's yeah. been quite a while back. That was that was a few years ago. Yeah. Yeah, quite a few years ago. Cool, cool stuff. We'll be back in a moment, and we're going to do some playing with inductors here. But first, let's have a message from our friends at ICOM. The fall season kicks off a fun time of the year. 
contesting. Whether you just jump in for a few hours or plan your week around the weekend strategy, ICOM has you covered. Contesting on a budget? Check out the IC7410, 32-bit floating-point DSP unit, all-mode, SSB, CW, ready, AM, and FM, and plus 30 dBm third-order intercept point to clearly receive the weakest signals. ICOM's IC7600 has your window to the contest, the Spectrum Scope. LED backlighting on an ultra-wide 5.8-inch display, dual watch on the same band, advanced DSP technology, and three IF roofing filters. For low-power category performance, just drop down the power to meet your low-power requirements with ICOM's IC7700. Spectrum waterfall display on an impressive 7-inch color LCD, audioscope function for AF observation, and direct remote control operation with ICOM's RSBA1 software. And with ICOM's IC7851, when running with the big boys, you'll be leading the pack with all the pile-up braking frequency running tools at your fingertips. 1.2 kHz optimum roofing filter, new local oscillator design with improved phase noise, and several spectrum scope enhancements. Make sure you visit icomamerica.com amateur for more information on ICOM selection of contesting rigs. Well, we're back. And we've got some things out here to play with. We've got a, a compass here. Uh, we've got a coil wire that actually I think was a coil out of a relay or something that I, I got years ago got some alligator clips and uh, I've got a, a c-cell battery here I've got one question how long did it take you to track down a compass that had the uh, green screen green letters on the back of it you know I'm not even sure where that one came from but yeah it does make a good effect <laughs> there doesn't it where you yeah. see right through it <laughs> yep transparent letters it's not everywhere you can get that that's true so what we're going to do here is look at self-inductance. You know, we've got the coil here sitting there ready. We're going to hook a battery up to it, and it's going to make a magnetic field around the coil. And hopefully, if it works out right, if we do generate a magnetic field, we should see the compass move here a little bit. So you're going to change the whole polarity of the Earth? That's what I'm about to do, or at least this small portion of it. Okay. So I'm going to connect the battery up now, and let's see if anything happens. It did. You changed due north. Yep. Ever so slightly. Ever so slightly. Now, you know, inductors are uh, interesting things there. We're creating a magnetic field by putting voltage on the wire there. He found out that if he wound that wire around a ferrous core, that it would increase the inductance oh. and the magnetic field. And I just happen to have a ferrous core right here. A ferrous core bolt? Uh, yep. We're going to slide it up in the wire there and hope that I don't disconnect the wire again. Let's see if it makes any difference in the effect that we get when we connect the battery. That's pretty fast. Look at there. Well, everything's tumbling. So adding the metal core there just kind of 
helped out the effect quite yeah, a bit. It really it? did a lot. Quite a bit. It's pretty amazing. When I was a kid, uh, teacher taught us about making electromagnets mm -hmm. using a six volt lantern battery. You remember those? Mm -hmm. And uh, that was so fun. I used to do those at home, just experimenting after. You know, I know a couple of guys that made one using a 12 volt seven and a half ampere hour yeah. battery one time. Yeah, and yeah, I remember that. I could feel the heat coming off that thing. Yeah. So I just happen to have a liner battery here and we could probably do another experiment. Let's get our uh, our compass and stuff out of the way. Okay. This is uh, commonly known as a relay. Yeah, that come out of your car? Uh, no, this came out of Radio Shack. Yeah. Back when Radio Shack used to sell relays. Yeah, it's been a long time. Yeah. Uh, this is a, I don't know, I think it's a double pole, double throw. It's got a 12-volt coil in it. You can see the coil is wound inside of there. And we were talking about inductors. Joseph Henry said that the self-inductance of a circuit tends to prevent the current from changing. If current is flowing, the self-inductance tends to keep it flowing. So what does that mean in layman's terms? <laughs> That's what I'm trying to <clears throat> determine right now. So that, what that I'm, means it almost acts like, uh, in a sense, almost like a battery where it stores a little bit of a charge, right? So if there's a ripple in the current or a break, a small break in it, that it can actually continue. Is that what that means? I think that's, that's how sort I interpreted of, it. Yeah, that's what. Sort of what it means. Sort of like a ripple in the space-time continuum. <laughs> yeah. Well, no. It. I think what it means if we put a voltage on this coil here, when we disconnect that voltage, there's going to be a pulse come back out and trying to keep that magnetic current going. No, that's probably not what that's, he meant at all, is it? Not exactly. I don't know. We can't really ask him. We're playing with some powerful stuff here. I think, <laughs> I think we're just going to have to try this and see what happens. Okay, I'll buy that. Hey, look, George, an oscilloscope showed up. Oh, it did, and it's mine. That's <laughs> even better. Yeah. Well, let's look at a couple of things here. we got our relay sitting there. Uh, of course, we got our battery sitting up here on the table, and our our jumper lead's connected to it. Run down here where we are. Hey, well, let me see. Can I suggest something? Yeah. Why don't we show the schematic about what we're about to hook up here so people can understand? You know, that's a very good idea. Look, it's a schematic of a battery and a relay. Yeah. Looks kind of like what we're doing. Yeah. It just doesn't have an oscilloscope hooked to it. However, we can take care of that right here in real time. Okay. First, let's just look at our... Uh, our, our voltage here from the battery. We can see now that the trace is sitting here at zero volts. If we connect 12 volts up to our probe, we see it comes up here, well, right about a little over 12 volts yep. on the oscilloscope. So I'm going to put that probe back down here on the relay, and let's energize the relay with it. Hear the click? Yep, I sure do. And it almost sounds like the spark gap transmitter we made. Except it kind of no, does. No frying. i tell you what. Let's change our sweep mode here on the scope and take another look at that. Okay. So we were in real time a while ago. Now what are we looking at now? We were in auto sweep mode, and now we're going to manual sweep mode. Okay. Which means whenever it detects a pulse, it will trigger, and then we'll, we'll get a capture of 
of whatever okay, the waveform looks like. Right. Okay. Yeah. All right. So we're going to hook up the voltage, and it should come up to 12 volts. And it did, but it didn't trigger on it because the scope didn't really pick up on that, and that's okay. But look what happens when we disconnect the 12 volts. Uh-oh. See those pulses come out there? Yeah. That's that's the spikes coming back out of the coil here or the, the inductor. The, oh, okay. So this just basically discharging, trying to uh, it, yep. keep keep the voltage from changing. Trying to keep it from changing. So how do you stop the, those spikes from getting into your circuit? Well, normally what you'll do is you'll just uh, take a diode and put it across the coil of the relay. Um, you know, here's a typical silicon diode here. I'm going to put the band of the diode here to the side of the relay that's going to be positive, thereby bypassing the whole cathode-nanode conversation. Okay. Which I'll edit that out. All right, so our diode... We've got it shorting across the coil now, only in one direction, though. So if I put positive voltage on the top here, the diode's not going to short out. But if a spike comes back down there when we disconnect our positive voltage, it'll be shorted out by the diode. It'll be prevented from going back. It'll be prevented from going back. That's what we're hoping to see here. So let's see what happens. So there we go, a couple of little inductor experiments. One just showing that the inductor does have electromagnetic properties by changing the position of the compass. And the other showing that um, self-inductance and that magnetic field trying to collapse back down that coil and try to keep that voltage at a constant level. Cool. That's interesting stuff. It is. I'll tell you what. Why don't we take a break? Go uh, look at something here. Come back, give away a t-shirt and a cap. And a cap. And then let's actually get into the program. All right, let's do that. Are you new to the ham world or an existing amateur operator who wants to take your license to the next level? Study for your radio license exam at hamstudy.org. Hamstudy.org is a free online learning tool powered by ICOM. It was created by Richard Bateman, KD7BBC, Michael Stuffelbeam, KV9G, and Rich Porter, KK6GKE, and it uses a modern web design to enhance the experience of studying for your technician, general, and amateur extra exams. Since 2013, hamstudy.org has helped new and existing hams to familiarize themselves with the question pools, use stats-based flashcards to focus on material they need to learn, and take practice exams to gauge progress. Visit hamstudy.org on your desktop computer or mobile device. Register for a free account at hamstudy.org to access personalized study history and other site features. Prepare for an exam in an intuitive and comprehensive manner. Check out hamstudy.org, powered by ICOM, for free learning tools. Good luck on your next exam. As we promised a minute ago, it's time to give away something. And for those of you who registered after last month's show at hamcollege at amateurlogic.tv, you know all we need is an email from you. Uh, We're fixing to do a drawing. And what have we got over there? Well, we've got some ICOM swag. We've got a nice ICOM cap. Mm-hmm. And we've got a nice ICOM Ham Crew T-shirt. I think it's what we showed last 
Oops, sorry. Yep. Showed last time. Nice shirt. And so let's give away one of those right now, and I'll go to a nearby computer. And we're going to do a random drawing. And it looks like this month's winner is going to be Doug Zimmerman, KM4, FWM. All right. Congratulations, Doug. Congratulations, Doug. We'll get that out to you. For the rest of you out there, send an email to hamcollege at amateurlogic.tv, and you could be next month's winner. Now, we don't collect the names or addresses or anything like that. Uh, they get deleted after each show. So, right. So uh, we'll start over on a clean mm -hmm. slate every time. Yep. So ICOM will be getting in contact with you and getting this right out to you. Thanks for watching, Doug. Well, let's get on into the meat and potatoes of the program now. Okay. Our question and answer session. And we don't have the chat room going tonight. We've been having some Internet speed issues here. Yeah. And I've, that's been going on for a couple of weeks here. And they, I've spent hours on the phone and with technicians here trying to solve it. And uh, well. Yeah, I've been having a little trouble at my house, too, since I got home. Uh, I noticed it's mm -hmm. been really, really slow. So, since we don't have the chat room going during tonight's show, we're kind of on our own here. Uh-oh. Although our friend Mike, VE3MIC, sent an email before the show tonight, and he said that he would be in the chat room, although there would be no one else there, and that he was going to choose C as the answer to every question. Okay, so let's see how he does let's then. Let's see how we'll he does. score for him. Yep. So, first question here, which of the following can be used to enter the operating frequency on a modern transceiver? A, the keypad or VFO knob. B, the CTCSS or DTMF encoder. C, the automatic frequency control. Or D, all of these choices are correct. And so, Tommy? since you read it, I guess I get to answer it, right? Yep. So, A, the keypad or the VFO knob. I do know that that is a valid way to, to get the frequency in. But since D says all of these choices, let's check the others as well. Uh, the CTCSS or DTMF encoder, that's not the operating frequency, although that there is some frequency involved in that. But yeah. we'll cover that at a later time. That's kind of a little bit more of an advanced topic. Or the automatic frequency control, um, I think that's uh, part of the circuit to keep it from drifting. Yep. frequencies, right? So the only valid answer really there is uh, A, the keypad or VFO knob. Yeah. And the VFO knob is sort of like your tuning control on an old school radio where you mm -hmm. can just spin, spin yep. the, the dial and change the frequency. What does the VFO stand for? It stands for variable frequency oscillator. Right. So I think you're right, Tommy. It's going to be A. Yeah. And, the, and the keypad is where you can actually enter the frequency directly. Right. So if mm -hmm. you want 146... That five two, you can just type it in. Sorry, Mike. The answer was not C. Yeah, that's not good for you, Mike. So nope. hopefully things will pick up. <laughs> yep. Let's go on to the next one here. All right. So, uh, what is the purpose of the squelch control on a transceiver? A to set the highest level of volume desired. B to set the transmitter power level. C to adjust the automatic gain control. Or D, to mute receiver output noise when no signal is being received. And let's see. <clears throat> what is the purpose of the squelch control on a transceiver? A, to set the highest level of volume desired. No, I think I would use the volume control for doing that. Yeah. B, to set the transmitter power level. No. Yeah, probably the power control for that. 
probably the power control for that. C to adjust the automatic gain control. Um, no. That's automatic. That is automatic. That's just what I was thinking. Or D, to mute receiver output noise when no signal is being received. And since squelch does kind of mean to, uh, to mute something or shut something off or stop something, I'm going to say it's D. Yep. And these, again, we're back to some of those that if you just think through them, if you don't know what squelch is, if you're absolutely new to mm -hmm. radio, you can actually reason this out by looking at the other ones. Um, who, who would use the volume control to, you know, who would set the volume with a squelch? I yeah. mean, some of these just uh, don't even really make sense. So if you start eliminating those, then you can zero in on the right one yep. most of the time. Next question, which of the following describes the muting of receiver audio control solely by the presence or absence of an RF signal? A, the tone squelch. B, carrier squelch. C, the CTCSS. Or D, modulated carrier. And this is very, very uh, close to the, the last one, it's very related. Mm -hmm. Okay, so A, tone squelch. <clears throat> That's going to be... I think that's going to be like the subaudible tone. Um, the question says uh, solely by the presence or absence of an RF signal. So B, carrier squelch, I'm thinking that's going to be the answer because the carrier comes from the RF signal. Yeah, carrier and RF signal are kind of the same, right. same or CTCSS, thing. that's going to be the tone. And modulated carrier, I think it's going to be... Um, like sideband, which you don't really have to worry about that. So I'm going to go with B, Bravo, Carrier Squelch. And you're correct on that. So, uh, Mike, sorry again, the answer is not C. It's not a good night for Mike. It is not. He's usually a lot sharper than this. Well, he is, yeah. But he's got all the other people in the chat room helping him out, too. True. <laughs> so what else have we got there? Okay. What is the meaning of the procedural signal CQ? A, call on the quarter hour. B, a new antenna is being tested. No station should answer. C, only the called station should transmit. And D, calling any station. And let's see, CQ, call on the quarter hour. Nah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's not it. B, a new antenna is being tested. No station should answer. Okay, I, I see how they got the CQ from call on quarter, but I'm not seeing the other. Yeah, a new antenna's being tested. No station should answer. How would we know if the antenna was working? But anyway, that's uh, that's not the answer. C, only the called station should transmit. Well, they're not calling anybody. They're just saying CQ. How would you know mm -hmm. who they were calling? So I think it's got to be D, calling any station. And let's see. That's correct. All right. Another one for us and, and another uh, one less for Mike. Mike's, Mike's in the negatives now. I think he is. Yep. So next one. Who? So CQ. CQ is basically when you, if you're calling CQ, you're basically looking for anybody to talk to. So if I'm saying CQ, 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 this is W5JDX. Then so that any, means anybody. Anybody can that hears you, you're you're looking just basically for anybody to talk to. Hey, I'm here, somebody. Yep. All right. Next question here. How should you respond to a station calling CQ? 
A, transmit CQ, followed by the other station's call sign. B, transmit your call sign, followed by the other station's call sign. C, transmit the other station's call sign, followed by your call sign. Or D, transmit a signal report, followed by your call sign. And it's my turn to answer, and this this one could be a little bit confusing if you don't stop and think about what each one of these say, because they look kind of similar. Who's on first? Yeah, really. Sort of. Okay, so let's just break them down. Transmit CQ followed by the other station's call sign. If someone's calling CQ, their response is not to, to answer with CQ again. Yep. So that's, that's not going to be it. Transmit your call sign followed by the other station's call sign. And that that's backwards because normally when you initiate a call, you transmit you call you call the other station's call mm-hmm. sign followed by yours. So that's not going to be it. C transmit the other station's call sign followed by yours, which is basically what I just said. I think that's going to be the answer. Mm-hmm. D transmit a signal report followed by your call sign, and you you don't respond with a <laughs> signal report. So I'm going with C. Yeah, only if they were asking for a signal report, but no, no, normally right. would not. See, that's what Mike is saying. So it, let's let's see if you two he are may right. Get one. He could. Way he got go, one. Mike, you can't even see the questions, man, and you hit it. Yep. Way to go. Way to go. Well, let's just practice here. So if I go on the air and I say um, uh, CQ, 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 this is W5JDX. How are you going to? reply if you heard me doing that and you wanted to talk to me oh i would i would say w5jdx this is in 5z and o yep so it's always the other station's call sign first and yours last right always mm-hmm. and e- and even if you weren't calling cq if if i was just passing through and i wanted to holler at you if you were around i'd get on the frequency repeat or whatever and and give that mm-hmm. basically that same same uh instruction call your call sign followed by mine yep. and we were talking earlier, and I, I believe you said that you, there's a good chance if you're new, you're going to get that backwards because it just... Guaranteed. Guaranteed. Um, you know, old guys, if you hear somebody do that, it, you know, they'll they'll give you some pointers and tell you that uh, you got it wrong. But, you know, old guys, be gentle if you do that. Don't. Yeah, don't scare the new people off. Yeah. Um, and if, and if you just got your call sign, that that's kind of scary to think you're going to do something mm-hmm. wrong. Um, you know, we all make mistakes. Don't be scared by that to get on the air because I actually know some people that, that I remember when I first got mine, I was a little bit scared of messing it up. So, oh, yeah. I yeah. mean, it's just natural, but don't let that hold you from yeah. getting on the air. Because the more you do it, the the less chance you got of messing up it'll just become second nature you won't even think oh, about oh, it Oh, absolutely you'll just uh, automatically do it in the correct order yeah. uh, but it does seem a little strange yeah. if you think of it as me saying n5 z and o this is w5 jdx just think of this is before the second call and you know you're mm-hmm. it's got to be yours yeah and sometimes i'll I just say that yeah sometimes i don't just depends yep Yep. All right, ready to move along? Let's move along. Uh, I think this was me. Yep. Which of the following is a guideline to use when choosing an operating frequency for calling CQ? A, listen first to be sure that no one else is using the frequency. B, ask if the frequency is in use. C, make sure you are in your assigned band. Or D, all of these choices are correct. Hmm. 
And let's see, eh? Yeah, listen first to be sure no one else is on or using the frequency. That's a good idea. That's a great idea. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to just jump in and start calling CQ where somebody has a conversation going. Yeah, you'll get people's attention really quick. Yep, and not in a good way. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I know that that one's going to have to be yeah, there. Yeah, that's common courtesy. B, ask if the frequency is in use. Another courtesy. That's thing. a good idea, too, and uh, I think that's... Yeah, I think that's going to be uh, one of the answers as well. Although, if I've been sitting there listening for 10 minutes and I haven't heard anybody, I'm pretty sure no one's there. But, uh, you know, to answer this question, you you need to think, yeah, you need to ask if it's in use. Yeah, it's kind of courteous thing to do. Just Yep. Uh, C, make sure you're in your assigned band. I think that's a requirement. Uh, that's a requirement, too. You don't want to go transmitting willy-nilly all over the hand bands. Yeah. If you don't have uh, privileges there, you certainly don't want to be transmitting there. Yeah. So I think we're going to have to say, D, all of these choices are correct. And all right. that's it. That's it. And that's not another one for Mike. No, Mike didn't get that one either, did he? He did not. Well, Mike, you don't do so good when you don't have the questions or the answers. Yep. So let's move on to the next one here. What is the term used to describe an amateur station that is transmitting and receiving on the same frequency? A, a full duplex communication. B, diplex communication. C, simplex communication. Or D, multiplex communication. So what do you think? Okay, A, full duplex. I know that is when you transmit on one frequency and receive on the other. Sort of like a telephone. You can hear and mm-hmm. and talk at the same time. Right. Um, B, diplex communication. I'm honestly not sure exactly what the definition of diplex is. Um, I know what a diplexer is. It's where you take, say, two transmitters and you run them into one antenna with a combining network. So surely that's not what we're talking about. I would think not. C, simplex. And I'm thinking this is going to be the answer because that's when you tr- that is when you transmit on one frequency and receive on the other on the same one actually. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to be the answer. But but just for completeness, D multiplex communication. I don't really know what the definition of that is either. That would be. Um, let me see. How would you say that? That would be like multiple communications going on a single frequency, sort of like. Uh, FM stereo is considered a multiplex transmission because it's a left channel and a right channel and a stereo pilot and maybe a subcarrier as well, mm-hmm. all combined into one signal there. So I'm going to go with you. I'm going to say it's simplex uh, communication. It's a simple one frequency. And that's correct. All right. And I'm going to do some homework and look those other ones up because now I want to know the full definition of them for sure. Yeah. So typically simplex would be like uh, you and I agree on a frequency we're going to have a conversation on or a QSO, you know, is another word for conversation. We agree that we're going to be on this one frequency and we both talk on the same frequency as a simplex communication. Happens every day. Yeah. If we were going to be using a repeater, though, then we don't call that simplex because we're on a repeater and... We're actually listening on one frequency, 
But when you key your radio to transmit, you'll notice it shifts to another frequency to yep. go to the repeater. Right. I'm wondering if that's considered diplex. It could, possibly could be. I'm thinking it is. That's what I want to look up. Yeah. Now, multiplex, I kind of knew about that, the multiplexer, a lot of things going on on one. Mm -hmm. So, cool. All right. Well, what have we got for the next one there? Okay. What is an appropriate way to call another station on a repeater if you know the other station's call sign? A, say break, break, <laughs> then say the station's call sign. B, say the station's call sign, then identify with your call sign. C, say CQ three times, then the other station's call sign. Or D, wait for the station to call CQ, then answer it. So A, say break, break, then say the station's call sign. No, you don't want to do that. No. No. That's not going to be it. B, say the station's call sign. Then identify with your call sign. Well, I think we just right kinda, in line with the conversation we just had a few questions back. Yep, I'm going to say that's it. It's going to be B, C, say CQ three times, then the other station's call sign. No, no. that would kind of. I don't so know. So we just we just discussed what CQ means. That means calling any station. So yep. you're calling any station, then your station you're looking for. That doesn't even really make sense. No, because you're trying to call the, you know, the other station's call sign. Absolutely. Uh, so D, wait for the station to call CQ, then answer it. He may not say CQ for a long, long time. Or ever. Or ever. So I'm going to say it's B, say the station's call sign, then identify with your call sign. That's got to be the answer. It's got to be it. Right. Tommy, we're batting 100, and I don't think Mike's got but one right yet. Yeah, he's got he's No, got, he got two. He got Simplex right. Oh, he did? Okay. Yep. I'll give him credit for that one. Okay. All right, next question here. Under what circumstances should you consider communicating via Simplex rather than a repeater? A, when the stations can communicate directly without using a repeater. B, only when you have an endorsement for simplex operation on your license. Hmm. <laughs> C, only when third-party traffic is not being passed. Or D, only if you have simplex modulation capability. Boy, they're making this really complicated, aren't okay, they? Okay, I'm going to start. It's my turn to answer, and yep. I'm going to start from the bottom up on this one. Okay. So only if you have simplex modulation capability. <laughs> I don't even know where they come, make some of this stuff up. Yeah. Um, but it, it's not going to be that. Um, <laughs> no, we're no not really sure what modulation. that is. Yeah, we don't even know uh, what that means. No. Only when you have third-party traffic is not being passed. Uh, that's, of course, you don't want to talk over any when any traffic's being passed. But that's that's not even really pertinent to the question. Mm -hmm. B. Only when you have an endorsement for simplex <laughs> operation, and there is no such thing. No. So the answer is going to be A when the stations can communicate directly without using a repeater. And that's that's common sense. Yeah, that you, makes sense. You don't want to tie up the repeater when you don't really need it in case someone over a greater distance yeah. is trying to communicate. And then at the other point, there's no need for me to try to call you if I can't reach you by simplex anyway. I'll have to use a repeater. Right. So, uh, yeah. All right. Well, let's go on to the next one here. All right. 
What must an amateur operator do when making on-air transmissions to test equipment or antennas? A. Properly identify the transmitting station. B. Make test transmissions only after 10 p.m. local time. C. Notify the FCC of the test transmission. Or D. State the purpose of the test during the test procedure. And this is me. That is you. Okay. Well, I can... I can say a little bit about this. Okay. So right up your alley. Yep. All right. So when or what must an amateur operator do when making on-air transmissions to test equipment or antennas? Properly identify the transmitting station, A. Well, yeah, you gotta you got to properly identify. So, I mean, always. We, we know that's the answer without even going any further. You've always got to identify your station, whether you're testing or not. Always. Yep. yep. So, B, make test transmissions only after 10 p.m. local time. Now, there's nothing about anything to do with time and amateur regulations. Now, there used to be, and it probably still is for broadcast stations, what they call the experimental uh, operation time, which would be after midnight and, I believe, up till uh, local sunrise. When you could go on, say, if it's a daytime-only station, once, once the sun goes down, they got to shut off on an AM station that's daytime only. They cannot transmit after sunset until midnight. Then they can do tests, but yeah, no tests before that. But they're going to have to an ID anyway mm-hmm. if they're going to do tests. All right, but that's nothing to do with amateurs. So C, notify the FCC of the test transmission. I don't think they're really that interested as long as you're IDing. And I'm pretty sure they don't even have the manpower to accept the notification. Yep. Or D, state the purpose of the test during the test procedure. You can state the purpose if you want to, but it's not required. No. So I'm going to but say, you always want, anytime you're going to transmit over the air, you want to identify your station always. Yeah. Without, without exception, always. Yep. At least every 10 minutes. Yeah. And if you, if you can, really, it's best to do your testing into a dummy load. And well, it is. Out on the air Sometimes if you, if you, you can. can. Yeah. You know what you're doing. If you're testing an antenna, obviously, you'll have to be on the antenna. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so it's going to be a properly identify the transmitting station. All right. All sorry, right. Sorry, Mike. Sorry. Yep. Okay. Which of the following is true when making a test transmission? A, station identification is not required if the transmission is less than 15 seconds. Station identification is, I'm sorry, that's B. Station identification is not required if the transmission is less than one watt. C, station identification is only required once an hour when the transmissions are for test purposes only. Or D, station identification is required at least every 10 minutes during the test and at the end of the test. Okay, so this is me. And what what did we just say? Always identify your station. Mm -hmm. So that's going to knock A and B out right there. Mm -hmm. Because they say identification is not required if. uh, Yeah, that's false. There are no ifs. Yeah. Okay, so that takes us to C. Station identification is only required once an hour. And this is the United States where we require it every 10 minutes. Mm Mm-hmm. And D, station identification is required at least every 10 minutes during the test and at the end of the test. And that's normal identification practice. And that's the answer. We actually covered that in a previous episode. We did. And that's just the general 
rules for identifying your station. Right. So if you're if you're testing something, it doesn't really exempt you from any of the standard rules or basically what you can take away from this. Exactly. All right, let's move on to the next one. Uh, which of the following is a good electrical insulator? A, copper. B, glass. C, aluminum. D, mercury. Or aluminum. Aluminium. If we were somewhere other than If, if we were down US. under or maybe in the U.K. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's see. Which is a good insulator? Okay, an insulator is something that's not going to conduct electricity. Copper yep. is a very good conductor, so I know it's not A. B, glass, that's an insulator. It Electricity doesn't pass through it. So that could be it. C, aluminium, that's a (laughs) conductor. It's not the best one, but it is a conductor. And D, mercury, mercury will conduct too. It will. That's what's used in those old uh, thermostats. And the silent light switches, the ones that used to flip that, mm-hmm. that made no noise, they, they had a mercury switch in there. So, uh, it, obviously, it can only be B. All right. And chalk up one more for the home team there. All right. Way to go. Way to go. All right. Let's shift gears now a little bit. Yeah, well, we just shifted them with that question. You don't really see a lot of glass insulators. I'm thinking maybe it was more common... In the past, um, I've got there's two sit, three sitting right up there. Are they new? No, they old. They're old. See, point taken. <laughs> yeah, you don't see as many. Yeah, uh, they're probably um, well. You just don't see as many. It used to be fairly common, even mm-hmm. uh, on the electrical poles, they would have glass insulators at the top of mm-hmm. some of those. Yeah, they use a lot of ceramics now. Mm-hmm. But uh, what type of electrical component stores energy in a magnetic field? A, a resistor. B, a capacitor. C, an inductor. Or D, a diode. Hmm. Sound sounds like a familiar subject. It does. I actually saw that about. Uh, I would like to say fifteen minutes ago, but it was probably more like a couple of hours <laughs> in real time. So, what do you think? Well, let's look at them. A, resistor. We covered that last month. Um, that that uh, does not store <laughs> no. energy. Mm-mm. B, a capacitor. A capacitor will store energy. Yeah, but it's not in a magnetic field. Not in a magnetic field. Mm-mm. A diode, that's almost like a, a check valve for electricity. Yep. It keeps it from flowing yep. Mm-hmm. backwards so the answer is going to be c an inductor, an inductor. As, as we demonstrated earlier tonight exactly yeah we had a, a good look at that and uh, mike got another one correct go mike what is the ability to store energy in a magnetic field called a admittance b capacitance c resistance or d inductance this isn't really very fair since we just kind of talked about this. And I gave you the answer on the previous Well, question. you, you kind of did. Well, you, you practically en- did. I gave you enough that if you miss it, it's not yeah. going to be good. Yeah, it's not going to be pretty huh? No, but I got a funny feeling Mike's not going to do well. Yeah. A, admittance. No, it's not that. <laughs> C, capacitance. Well, that has nothing to do with magnetic fields or so I've been told. Yeah. Uh, C, resistance. Now, that's not storing any energy. It's dissipating energy. So, D, inductance. 
and you know we did a little experiment a little while ago that kind of proved that out so I'm, I'm gonna say it's d inductance man mr henry would be proud of you he would be and next one here what electrical component is usually composed of a coil of wire a a switch b capacitor c a diode or d an inductor and i bet you can guess this I, one. I see a pattern here yeah so a switch is not a coil of wire no although there could be a coil of wire involved in some switches well i guess it could yeah yeah maybe like this one right here yeah. a relay yeah b capacitor uh, I don't think there's any coils of wire in capacitors. No. Not that I know of. C, a diode. No. D, an inductor. Yeah. That's basically the premise of the whole thing. Well, you know, I'm going to be inclined to agree since the last three or four questions of all the answer has been inductor. But, yeah, you're right. An inductor, a coil of wire, just like, uh, just like we looked at earlier. Yeah. A lot of power in that coil of wire. It is. All right, well, let's move on to our final question for tonight. Okay. What is the basic unit of inductance? A. Wow. I think you should have read the first one. A. The Coulomb. Coulomb. Okay. B. The Farad. 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 C. The Henry. Or D. The Ohm. Well, let's see. I know the ohm, that's the basic unit of resistance, so that's not it. I know B, the farad, that's the basic unit of capacitance, so that's not it. The coulomb, and I'm not going to go into what that is, Thank but you. that's not it. Okay. So it's got to be C, the Henry, and B. Give you a hint. Yep. Yep, being that we just had a uh, history lesson, I was going to say a Henry lesson. We had that we did. Too. But uh, Henry yeah, history. that's going to be it, the Henry. So I think we did pretty good tonight, Tommy. We didn't miss a one. And Mike got that one right. Mike got that one right, too. I don't think he passed. But, uh, no, I think he got like four out of how many did we have tonight? Uh, I don't remember. Probably about 15 or 16. Yeah. So he didn't do that well, but there again. He couldn't see the questions. Yeah. If you didn't know the question, you might get the answer wrong. Good I think we proved that out. That's a, yeah. Right. That could happen. Well, we appreciate uh, everyone being here tonight. Tommy, I think we're going to have to wind it on up. We can't do any chat room questions tonight because, yeah. uh, well. I'm about ready to uh, put my 1.21 gigawatts to the flux capacitor and make it onto the house. <laughs> yeah, I think so, too. Um, I'm about ready. Well, I think the rain has already stopped that we heard a moment ago. Yeah, it started raining while we were shooting, and uh, we haven't had rain here in probably close to four months or so. Like significant Not to mount rain. anything, and I'm not sure that was significant. It, no. It's more significant than what we've had in a long time. But, yeah, I bet uh, the grass probably isn't even wet. No, probably not good. It'll be dried off by the time we step outside. Well, we just want to mention a couple of things before we get out of here tonight. And first is we've got, um, we're very social people. We are social. 
at least. You, you couldn't tell by looking at us. No, you couldn't, but <laughs> uh, there there are people that enjoy our shows, Amateur Logic and Ham Nation, and they gather together in a few different places, and Hope, we have a great old time. Hopefully you're one of them. Hopefully you are one of them. One place is over on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash group slash amateurlogic.tv. We've and also got a big uh, Google Plus. Google Plus group. Uh, I think that's, I can't really see the uh, URL of that. I can't really see the URL because it's covered up too, but if you're looking on screen right now, you can see it. Or you can just go to Google Plus, and uh, that's plus.google.com, and search for Amateur Logic. And you'll find the amateur logic community. Yep, and um, there's some there's some interesting stuff there. That uh, the Facebook group is great, the Google Plus group is great, and but you really ought to participate both. in both of them if yeah. you, if you get on both of those because there's some interesting stuff that uh, Mike we've been talking about uh, Photoshop pictures and, and mm-hmm. a lot of unique content that that just doesn't make its way to the Facebook group. You know, I wish I would have grabbed a picture. Uh, that we were looking at earlier that he posted today. That was uh, back when you were on double secret probation, I yeah. think. And you might congratulate While that you for finish it. reading, yeah, while I, that, finish, I will bring yeah. that up. You know, you can also follow Amateur Logic on Twitter and you'll find out uh, when we're shooting, uh, what's going on with Amateur Logic and Ham College. You can also follow Ham College. Uh, we've got a Twitter account there as well. And one other thing I want to mention, and that's the show notes wiki that our friend Dan in 9LVS does for us. It's amateurlogic.tv slash wiki. And there you'll find uh, the latest show notes on both programs there. Oh, Tommy, I think you've got a, a photo ready for us there, huh? I do. Let's take a look at it. Yeah, that's what you'll see yeah, on Google+. Yeah, that's, uh, that's back from my old college days. And uh, mm-hmm. anyway, it's... Uh, we were going to be doing a live recording tonight, so this is a little uh, reminder that Mike had made up for us. Yep. But that, uh, that, And you can see the conversation on the side there is where we're discussing that it didn't really work out. I think, really, if you look down there further, you'll see that he guessed more than just C's. He had sent me an email earlier saying that, or, or somewhere he said he was going to guess all we, C's. Here we go. C, 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 D, A, C, B, D, B, C. Uh, right. We're not going to go right. back and no. grade every one of those. We could. <laughs> we could, but we're going to run out of time. Yeah, we are. All right. Well, thanks for being here with us uh, for this episode of Ham College. Get out there, do a little study, and get your ham ticket. And join us back here next month, whether you're a ham or not. Yep. We uh, we had a good time, and we will see you here next month. Right. 73. 73. Better catch the slides up to the right place. Oh, we're gonna need this one. We got a guest, <coughs> we got a special guest. <laughs>
<laughs> as promised, it's time to give away something. And as we... Uh, in Albany, you... In Albany... <laughs> In Albany, New York, at 13 years old, he was. A <laughs> I could hear you. Laughing, man. I can't help it, man. In Albany, New York. Golly, why can I not say that? By 1826, he was appointed professor. <laughs> Jeez. In Albany, New York, at 13 years old. He was an apprentice to a washmaker. Dang! <laughs> if we do generate a magnet, Phil, if we do generate a magnet, no. If we this do, it's not just me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so here's our battery. Joseph Henry was wrong. It's uh, it's not quite as impressive as I was. <laughs> <laughs> thinking it was it might be.